kind of spiritual life is available to you today, to all of us? You ever see, you meet people and they're super spiritual. This is great, right? You know, Presbyterians worshiping like this. And then it seems like they're the extra spiritual people out there somewhere, waving their hands around. They're so excited and they're expressing it with their bodies. And like I said, it's, one isn't necessarily better than the other, but it's just different. But sometimes some of us who feel a little bit Presbyterian are wishing we were a little more Pentecostal, weren't we? Because those folks seem to be experiencing something that doesn't maybe feel like what we experience every day. What kind of spiritual life is available to us today? Maybe you're here, maybe you, you, you've been a Christian for a long time, and you spend time with, with the Lord every day. You set aside a portion of your day. I hope that actually it's, it's all of your day, whether it's, it's uh, conscious or not. But maybe you especially set aside some portion of your day to be uh, praying and reading scripture. And has this ever happened to you? You know, you get there and you start to pray. You say, dear Jesus. And you struggle to get any farther. You don't have to raise your hand and out yourself this morning, by the way. And you open up your Bible and you start to read your Bible. And you're like, what is going on here? And why don't I feel anything? Some of you, you know, that's not the only experience I think that any of us have, but sometimes it does feel kind of like that, doesn't it? It feels spiritually lifeless. Am I just going through the motions? Does this actually touch my life and my heart in any sort of meaningful way? And let me tell you, if you're feeling this way, I need to get my Bible. It's Easter morning, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, things, parts of me are everywhere. But I came to this passage in Colossians 3. I'm thinking, what do we preach on, on Easter Sunday? It should probably be about the resurrection. Yeah, it's a big deal on Easter Sunday morning. And I came to Colossians chapter 3, and it said this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. And I said, what are you talking about? Anyone else get that? When you, I mean, I cheated for you a little bit this morning. gave you some context. But anyone else, is that your experience? You said, since then, you have been raised with Christ. You say, are you sure? about that. Am I really raised with Christ? What kind of spiritual life is really available to us today? If you're here and you're feeling dry, is there something that's going to turn you around? If you're here and you've never known Jesus before and you're just checking it out and you're thinking, you know, I, maybe I'm interested in some kind of spirituality, but I don't know if this is it for me or if anything is it for me. What kind of spiritual life is available to you? Christianity is unique in that it matters more what somebody did on a certain day than it matters, you know, how the sort of wisdom that's available in the teaching. Now, both are important. Don't misread me here. Jesus is a great teacher, and I don't mean to minimize that about him. But Jesus didn't come just to be a great teacher. If you're here on Good Friday... Uh, we were talking about the fact that Jesus, when his disciples finally got a handle on who he was, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, he immediately told them, I'm going to die. And they said, no, you're not. That's wrong. Jesus said, I came for a lot of things, but the most important thing I'm going to do with my life is to give it up and then to rise again three days later. See, Christianity is unique in that it's not just, here is the, the way to have your best life today, all apologies to Joel Osteen. That's not actually what it's about. Christianity is about where do you find life at all? 
Because so often we're a bunch of zombies walking through this one. You know what zombies are, right? They're half dead, they're half alive. They are the living dead. And if you do the math on that one, that's an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. You cannot be alive and dead. You're one or the other. And Jesus makes out that, hey, you know, you're all dead. He was really popular for telling people that. You're all dead, and you need new life. See, what Christianity turns upon is not how smart Jesus is, but it's on whether or not he actually rose from the dead on Sunday morning all those years ago. I remember when I was uh, just graduated from college. I think it was even before Kayla and I got married. And uh, so I was, I was going to church, and I joined an Alpha course at my church. And Alpha is about exploring who Jesus is together through discussion. It's not so much about one person being up front saying, this is what you should believe about Jesus. It's ironic I'm doing that this morning. But it's more about actually the discussion and the process of discovering together who is Jesus according to his own words. And uh, the first thing that we did is this table group. We're going to be together for like three or four months every week, studying together, learning together, talking together. And the first thing we did is we went around the table, all 10 or so of us, and said, why are you here? What do you hope to get out of this, this this alpha course? And there were all sorts of different answers. And I could tell, I remember a lot of them because they were really interesting. But I just want to tell you about my answer this morning because I want to be the center of attention. But more importantly, because it's actually helpful for my sermon. I said... What I want to know is how something that happened 2,000 years ago, half a world away, makes a difference in my life today. Does anyone else want to know the answer to that question this morning? I've been a Christian for over 20 years at that point. I mean, granted, a lot of them I was like, you know, one, two, and three. But I'd been a Christian for over 20 years, and I felt like I was still trying to figure that out. And I feel like even today, I'm still trying to figure that out. Because when I get to Colossians 3, and he says, since then you have been raised with Christ, I say, are you sure about that? And I don't remember everything that I learned in that Alpha course, but I'm going to use this passage this morning to summarize for you what I've learned over the course of my life. See, first of all, he says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Whenever you see in the New Testament letters a sense or therefore or because, you know what you need to do, right? You need to go backward before you can go forward. You have to go back and say, well, since what? What is it that you're referring to? And we read it for you this morning here. Back in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, okay, have you confessed your faith in Jesus Christ? You have faith in Jesus Christ. Have you sealed that in your baptism, gone before God's people and say, this is what I believe and allowed the Holy Spirit to then work in your life based on that confession? Because if you have done that, then you have been raised with Christ. Did This one you can raise your hands for. When, when you were baptized, if you were baptized, did you know that that's what was happening in that moment? You were being raised with Christ. We got one A-plus student out there. But if you're more like a C student like me, you probably didn't know. I'm being raised with Christ? How, how is this happening? 
Well, think about baptism. Paul's using this as an illustration. He's saying, when you were baptized, you got doused with water one way or another. Maybe they dunked you. They put you all the way under and you came up again. Maybe they poured it all over you and you were all wet. George and uh, Junior, remember when I baptized them? And man, I was aggressive. I was like, you're getting baptized today. And the pitcher goes, and they were soaked. And that was not just because it was so much fun for me. It was because... That's what baptism is. It's a washing with water, washing away our old life. It's saying this is what happens when you confess your faith in Jesus Christ. You are washed clean. And now for the rest of our lives, we can look back to that moment and say, I don't feel very clean today. But I remember I was baptized. I was washed. And it's gone. Not because the pastor was holy because he's not very holy, not because the water was special, because it was just water, but because it was a way of experiencing the truth about what faith in Jesus Christ does. It washes me clean. It gets rid of the undead part of my zombie life. And then he says something else happens, right? Especially if you're being immersed in the water. You go all the way under. You know, the early Christians, there is an early Christian manual for worship called the Didache. It was written probably less than 100 years even before, or after, excuse me, uh, Jesus died and rose from the dead. And it says, when, when it's time to baptize somebody, here's what you're going to do. It says, you're going to go, you're going to find the coldest running water you can find. Yeah, North Fork. Ed remembers, because we did that on North Fork. And you know, the great thing is the pastor gets to be in the water with you. I liked it better when we baptized Nita in the hot tub. That was great. <laughs> But he says, you find the coldest running water you can. You get them all the way wet. You put them under and you lift them up. He says, but maybe you're in a place where you don't have a lot of cold running water. Now, this is a terrible year for me to make this illustration because, oh my gosh, there's water everywhere. But a lot of the time around here, right, we can't just go find cold running water. And the Didache says, that's fine. You can still baptize people. Find, some, find the coldest, most running water you got. And if all you got is that lake in August when it's still 80 degrees in the water, you know, you get in and it's not refreshing at all, do it there. He says, if you can't find a lake, I'm, I might be paraphrasing a bit at this point, but find a puddle. If you can't find a puddle, just get them wet. That's what matters. But there's this idea, because Jesus baptized in the Jordan River, didn't he? John the Baptist baptized in the Jordan River. There's plenty of water there. They'd put people all the way under, and they would come up. And when you come up, when you're underwater, it's a little bit like dying, isn't it? Because you can't breathe, right? Now, I swim uh, for exercise, and I got a snorkel. I have the dorkiest snorkel and mask you can ever see. If you're ever at InShape on Demery, you see a dorky-looking person out of the pool, that's me. But when you're underwater, you can't breathe. And if you stay underwater long enough, you don't come back up, do you? Going underwater is like dying. And think about a time when maybe you were swimming, maybe even you were drowning, and you couldn't breathe, and then your head breaks the water, and what do you do? <gasps> and you can't breathe fast enough. It's like being born again. See, it's no coincidence in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes up to Jesus. He is one of the Jewish leaders. He's a Pharisee. He's supposed to have everything figured out. And he says, Jesus, we think you're a good guy. We know no one can do the stuff you do unless God really likes him. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Who do you think you are? You think you know something, Nicodemus? You don't know anything. He says, if you want to be part of what God's doing in the world, you have to be born again. 
Jesus actually says, born from above. And Nicodemus says, that's crazy talk. No one can do that. And yet that's exactly what we're symbolizing in our baptism. Our death to the old way of living, our death to the power of sin and evil in the world, our death to the consequences of these things so that we can live again and be raised to new life. Paul says, since then, you have been raised. You know what the biggest problem with Jesus' raised people today? We forget it. We forget we're new. We forget we're raised up. And we keep living this, we keep living this life the way we lived it before. We keep playing by the old rules. Right? And it's easy to do. That's the way we're used to living. When we see you know, election season come up, I, I hate to mention it because it's on its way again, isn't it? Woo! We see election season come up. It feels like the world's hanging in the balance, doesn't it? Because we don't believe we're really raised people. We don't believe that Jesus Christ really raises the dead. You know, the early Christians used to say all the time, Jesus is kurios, Jesus is Lord. You know whose title kurios was? You know who it belonged to? Caesar. Every time the Christians said Jesus is Lord, by implication they were saying, and Caesar is not. Now, I am not advocating, you know, I don't want any FBI or Secret Service out there. I'm not advocating rebellion against the government. I'm advocating not relying, not relying on it to fix what's broken and wrong in our world. Because only Jesus does that. Only Jesus raises the dead. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Live like you believe it. Live like you believe it. And it gives you power for life. You know what happened? Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them uh, committed suicide for betraying Jesus. Uh, So they appointed another one to take his place. You know what happened to those 12 disciples? They became rich, right? Telling everyone, oh, Jesus is risen from the dead. And people were like, take my money. No. They became famous and popular, right? No. Paul was run out of just about every town he ever went to. They were persecuted, they were hunted, they were beaten, they were killed, they were ostracized. You know what happened to the 12 disciples? 11 of them died poor and obscure and martyrs, killed for their faith. The 12th, the lucky one, according to tradition, was boiled alive, survived, and lived out his days on, in exile on the island of Patmos and gave us the book of Revelation. Folks, these are the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Did they believe it? Or were they making it up? They want to tell us about what they saw. They want to tell us that story of Mary Magdalene. Did you notice? It's not, a, it's not the most pretty story in the world. Like, if, if you were making this up, if I was Mary Magdalene and I was telling about how I met Jesus, I'd probably leave out the fact how I thought he was the gardener, <laughs> right? 
I'd probably emphasize a little bit more how upset I was. Oh, I was just so lost without Jesus. And then he appeared, and we had this big tearful reunion, and it was so wonderful. And he told me, by the way, hey, Mary, you're going to be the boss of the church from now on. Like, all these places for invention, and yet none of them taken. It, It has the ring of authenticity, doesn't it? This is just what I saw, and let me tell you. And the lives that these Christians lived afterwards say that this is what they saw. Jesus was dead, and then he was alive. We didn't think he could do it, but he did. What about Thomas's story? I love Thomas's story. Everyone has seen Jesus but Thomas. He's probably feeling pretty left out. Like, Jesus appeared to you and you and you and you and you and you, but not to me? Like, what am I? How come this didn't happen for me? And he says, I refuse to believe until Jesus appears in front of me. And I can put my hand in the hole in his side and feel the holes in his hands. I refuse to believe, Thomas says. It's looking really good right about now, isn't he? But here's the kicker. Not only does does he double down on his refusal, but then when he does actually see Jesus, he bows down. He says, my Lord and my God. Just maybe a better response than anyone else has had. It's more theologically accurate than anyone else's response. And what does Jesus say to him? Like, Thomas, I understand why you didn't want to believe. I understand. It's tough, you know, people coming back from the dead. I just want to compliment you. I mean, isn't this what we would, exactly what we would say in the modern world? I want to compliment you for your skepticism. You weren't going to be fooled by anybody. But what does Jesus say instead? Oh, now you believe? Don't you know, Thomas? You are the exception to the rule. The people who will see me alive in the flesh... Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Folks, we are the ones who have not seen. And Jesus has said, blessed are you. It doesn't make a lot of sense, this this resurrection life. And we live like we're not really sure if it's true. But if if we want to live, if we want to live like this is true, There are three things I want you to know this morning. First, what you need to do. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If we really believe that our life is hidden with Jesus, if we really believe that we can be resurrected like him, why are we wasting our energy? So many of the things we waste our energy on. Now, don't, I'm not saying here, don't ever do anything that you find fun. I'm not saying that. I am saying what we find in the book of Philippians, and this is sort of a life verse for me. Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on those things. I bet if I asked every single person in here right now, hey, what's something that is the opposite of all those things that you give your mental energy to, you'd be able to come up with something. I know I would. I got all sorts of things. And I'm not just talking about time wasters. I mean, we're built for play. We're built for fun. That's good stuff. But I'm talking about things that not just, you know, are maybe not super meaningful, but things that are impure, things that are unlovely, 
things that are not admirable, things that are ultimately lies. And yet we give our minds and hearts to those. If we want to live out of our new life in Jesus, if we want to know that we're really raised, first set your mind on things above, not the things of the earth. Secondly, if there's something you have to do, which is just change your perspective, live like raised people, there's something you need to know, which is your old life has been crucified with Jesus Christ on the cross. And your new life is hidden with Christ in God. Why does it matter that we know that? Well, first, let me tell you, let me tell you how we know that. Let's go back. Uh, uh, actually, here, let's go. Oh, now I've lost my train of thought. Your old life is gone. Oh, yeah. Let's stay here in the book of Colossians. Paul, uh, in, in speaking to the people in the church, he goes on to tell them, here's what you need to know. Jesus Christ, he took that old life. He took all of your brokenness. He took the power of the people who sent him to the cross, and he left it there to die. Because here's, here's what we, one thing we need to know about the cross as well. Like, people who will oppose what Jesus is about. The great weapon that anyone has in this world is ultimately death, right? We're going to deal death in one way or another. That's what bullets and bombs are for, ultimately, so we can exercise power through death. But Jesus says, you are people who, when you die, don't stay dead. So what terror do bullets and bombs hold for you? You can continue to live your old life, and all that you were subject to in that is gone. Your new life is hidden with Christ in God. And here's the great thing that we have from that new life today. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, he says, According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, raised to new life. To what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Um, there's something going on these days for, for young people. Uh, I know I'm subject to it, and I'm 40, so people younger than 40 at the very least. And it's the idea that with, with, with all that's being said about climate change and all of these sorts of things, uh, young people are being convinced that the best days in this world are behind us and not before us. Young people are being convinced that our human race has an expiration date irrevocably attached to it that it's all going to fall apart, that we're all going to die, and everything is going to be terrible from here on out. And Jesus says, if you belong to the resurrection, that is never, never true for you. If temperatures rise you know, half a degree centigrade, two and a half degrees centigrade, 100 degrees centigrade, you are a resurrection person. You have hope. doesn't mean do nothing, obviously, because this is God's good world. Let's not mess it up worse than we have to, all right? Are we agreed? Can we do that? Awesome. You can't get agreement on anything these days, so God bless you who agreed. But all of our fears in this world are not the last word. We can live as people of hope. Now, what we do to live in that resurrection life is to set our minds on the things above, not the things that belong to this old life that's passing away. What we need to know is that our old life is gone and our new life is hidden with Christ in God. And that gives us hope. But we also have one final hope too. 
Because I don't know about you, but when I woke up this morning, my back hurt. Yeah, anyone else had aches and pains this morning when you woke up? And when I look at my to-do list for this week, sometimes I get a little discouraged because there's always more on it than I can possibly do. I love coming to work. I do. I I love my job, and I love coming to work. But you tell me if this is what it's like for you. I come to work, and I I say, today I need to finish these five things. And I finish eight things, and none of them were the five that I wanted to do. Oh, my goodness. Because the work is not done. Right? If, If our hope is only for today, it's not enough. Because bad things really do happen in this world, and they really are wrong. And sometimes the best thing we know how to do is to try and pretend like it will all be okay. Right? We, we rely on pretending that it will all be okay. I know um, a while ago, uh, we were at an elder meeting. These people, I don't think, are here at the church any longer, so I'm not outing anyone when I say, say this. But someone came into the church, came to the meeting, and shared just an awful, difficult, hard thing in their life. And some of, someone in that meeting said, well, don't worry, God's got it. And listen, their words were 100% true, and their timing was 100% wrong. People, when I go, people have died, and I go and I spend time with the people that they left behind. And what do you think they're doing? They're, they're grieving with tears, right? They're crying. They're actually tears. You know what they all say to me? Every single one, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm crying. I don't know why I'm crying. Like, I do! <laughs> don't be sorry. This stinks. It's wrong. Jesus came to die and rise again so that a world will come where death no longer rules. Remember what we said at the beginning of the day? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, sin, where is your victory? That's out of 1 Corinthians 15. And you know, when Paul wrote that, he was doing this. It's a playground talk. Oh, death, where is your sting? You loser. John Donne, in his great sonnet, Death Be Not Proud, he says, Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor canst thou kill me. The poem goes on in the same way. There's a Christian poem. There's a Christian hope. One day, death's victory will be shown to only be apparent and not real. Jesus Christ, he's come once, he's defeated death, and he's gone to the Father. And praise God, our hope is that he is coming back. And when he does, he will remake the nature of the world. He will implement all that he accomplished and achieved on the cross. So that just as the book of Revelation, which by the way is quoting the Old Testament, says, God will wipe away every tear from every eye. Not he will make sure no one ever cries again, but there will be an adequate and perfect comfort for everything. The grief has already happened, and yet God will make it whole. 
the resurrection will work backward through all of our lives, rewinding them, not so that they'll play out differently, but so that it'll be redeemed. Every moment, not just of joy, but every moment of hurt and of pain that we wished we'd never gone through. You want to know how I know? You want to know how I know? It's because when Jesus appeared to his disciples, remember what Thomas said? Not unless I put my hand into his side and felt the holes in his hands. And Jesus came and he said, do it. In Jesus' resurrection, he still carried the scars of his crucifixion. But they were no longer marks of shame and defeat, but marks of glory and life. Look what they did to me and I'm still alive. There is nothing and no one who can conquer what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And he is coming back for each and every one of us to give us our hope. And if I can leave us with that, he will give us our hope. If we've hoped in him, he will give us himself and all that he's won for us. And if we've hoped in anything else, he'll give us what we wanted. And there's no life in what we want apart from Jesus Christ. So do you know him this morning? I don't mean to, to threaten you, but instead to tell you, he is coming back. He is coming back. The only one who ever defeated death. And he invites you today into his victory.